I once heard Jesse Ventura say that organized religion is for weak people. And I thought, you know, that's actually not true. It's the opposite, Jesse. Organized religion is for strong people because it takes a lot to hold yourself to a higher standard. It takes a lot to subjugate, to follow some rules and standards that are higher than the ones you might cook up for yourself. It takes a lot of courage to have faith in something that you may or may not have evidence in, like physical, tangible evidence. I actually think religion is for strong people, not weak people. Well, hey there. If we have not yet met, my name is Alex Judd. I'm the founder of Path for Growth, and this is the Path for Growth podcast. Now, as a business, we exist to help impact-driven leaders step into who they were created to be so that others benefit and God is glorified. And this podcast is just another iteration of how that mission comes to life. Today, I get to share with you a conversation that I had with Scott Miller. In many ways, Scott's name is one that has kind of become a household name in the personal growth, leadership growth, and business growth circles, and that's because he just has so much experience in that space. His background is originally in politics, but from there, he went to work for Disney's development company where he worked alongside a team to help develop the famed city Celebration Florida. And it was after that that he ended up moving to Utah and was recruited by Stephen Covey's team, Franklin Covey, which is one of the largest and most influential leadership development firms in the country. And what's really cool about Scott is that he's worked with Franklin Covey for over 26 years now, and he's served in just about every single role you can imagine, from frontline salesperson to project manager to sales leader to general manager to vice president to chief marketing officer. And today he serves as a special advisor on thought leadership for the Franklin Covey Company. And it's in that role that he hosts multiple podcasts, one of which being on leadership, which is one of the largest weekly leadership podcasts in the world. I so appreciated this conversation with Scott because of his openness and authenticity, because of his energy, and because of his willingness to generously share everything that he's learned over the course of his career with all of us. So here's my conversation with Scott Miller. Well, Scott, I'm really stoked about this. I'd love to jump into a topic that I've heard you talk about on other podcasts before that you've kind of noticed as a common thread between many of the really incredible leaders you've gotten to talk to, and that's the topic of an abundance mindset. So I'd love for us to jump in there. Can you describe for us, like, why is that something that really stands out to you after all your conversations with incredible leaders, Scott? You know, I think it's a commonality of some of the biggest mentors, influencers, thought leaders, authors, generals, celebrities that I've interviewed in the podcast that I host is they really all have this commonality. Two things, really. One is just this invitigable work ethic. Just, you know, outwork everybody. But they also have an abundance mentality. They live their lives in service of helping others accomplish what they want to do. They share all their mistakes. They share all their pitfalls and in, in, in on the path to success. And I think that's a commonality amongst big influential leaders that I've met and aligned myself with. Dr. Stephen R. Covey, who I spent 25 years in his company, working for him directly originally. And then he passed a decade ago, but I was the CMO of his company for a decade. He popularized this idea in his book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. This book has sold 40 million copies. He didn't invent the idea of a scarce or abundant mindset, but he certainly popularized it. And it's had a profound impact on me. And I don't think it's about, you know, how generous you are, 
how much money you give in the collection plate for your church or synagogue or mosque. It's really about your mindset is, do you believe there is enough to go around? Enough paper clips, enough toner cartridge, enough fame, enough love. And it's a mindset that I'm trying to have as one of my seven core values. It is one of my seven core values is abundance, positivity, health, integrity, purpose, abundance, and learning. Those are my seven values. And I really had it reinforced with my grandmother. Alex, I'll take a minute and share this story. My, I was raised in a dual faith family. My mother is Methodist. My father is Catholic. I was raised in a religious family. I am still a religious father to my three sons. My wife is not Catholic and I am. And so I'm kind of continuing that, that dual faith, if you will, different denomination. But my grandmother, my father's mother was a very staunch kind of German Catholic, you know, not a lot of emotions, not a lot of hugs. Well, anyway, her husband passed when my dad was seven. So my dad's dad died when he was like seven years old or nine years old, under 10. And then my father's twin brother caught polio. You know, back in the 50s and 60s, polio was like COVID times 200. I mean, you know, you didn't survive polio. And if you did, you were crippled. Anyway, my brother's, my father's twin brother caught polio. Eventually he died. And my my grandmother is widowed. She's in her 30s. She's left with two twin sons. One catches polio. And although my grandfather had life insurance, it wasn't a lot. And she was working as a lunchroom lady, like the lunch lady at the local junior high school. And I share the story because the Knights of Columbus, which you may know as a well-regarded Catholic service organization, came knocking at her door, offering to pay for the iron lung for her son in the throes of polio, who eventually died. And my grandmother, who passed 15 years ago, Agnes Miller, told the Knights of Columbus, I can afford this. Go next door. They can't. There's Protestants living next door. Now, this was in the 50s in Minnesota where the Catholics and Protestants walked on the opposite sides of the street going to school, like Northern Ireland and England kind of thing. And my grandmother, who was a staunch Catholic to her her death, said, go next door. They need it. And I heard that story once, like word for word from a relative. And my grandmother confirmed it in sort of her gruff, gruff German style. But it's had this massive impact on me about doing my best to live my day abundantly. I may not be able to afford it, but someone can afford it less than I can. And so I try to live with abundance in everything I do. Thank you for sharing that story. That's incredibly powerful. I, I think it's almost impossible to hear a story like that. And I mean, it's like, it'll, it's almost like it awakens something inside of you. You're like, wow, that, that is admirable. What is it about your grandmother in that story that maybe universally we look at and we say, man, that's beautiful? Well, my grandmother could not afford it by any stretch, but somehow she managed to. And to me, it was just to remind ourselves that people that live with an abundance mindset, they find a way to help others. They're always thinking win-win. It's a cliche, but again, another term Dr. Covey you know, popularizes that's their mindset. I'll tell you, I'm married to an incredible woman, shockingly attractive, very well educated, on and on and on and on and on. My wife has a scarce mindset. I don't know why. She was raised in an affluent family, one of five kids, went to private school, well-educated. She married a guy who did pretty well, so she's got some resources. But quite frankly, and I tell her this, she has a scarce mindset. She has kind of a mindset of, I kind of got to get mine, then you can get yours, but I kind of got to get mine first. 
And that's not to diminish or trash talk my wife. I could talk for hours around all the things she does well. I married her. She married me. We're still married, despite our three sons' attempt every night to plot against us. We're still married. <laughs> that's a different podcast, but it's true. We're convinced our sons go up to the attic every night and like, how can we destroy their marriage tomorrow? We'll get them. But yet every morning at five o'clock, we get on that sofa behind us and have a cup of coffee and recommit to one more day, right? Because love is a verb, people. Love is a verb. Mm, uh, that's good. I don't know if I answered your question well, but abundance is a mindset. And I think, you know, inspired by my grandmother or not, I'm, I, I'm trying to live my life with a theme of gratitude and abundance every day and be grateful that my house did not collapse on my children last week in Turkey. I mean, the horrors, I'm getting emotional, the horrors coming out of Turkey and Syria from last week is just... Remarkable, not sure when you're airing this podcast, but I try hourly to remind myself to think of others, to lift others, to help others, to use the platform and the spotlight that I've so preciously earned and been given and to leave the biggest legacy as possible. Long meandering story. I hope your listeners don't think I trashed my wife. <laughs> I don't feel that way. And I don't think they will either. Earned and given. I, I, I love those two words paired together. Can you explain like how that informs your mindset talking about your career or other things? Why is it important to look at it as earned and given? Well, one is because I've worked my ass off for 40 years to get to where I am, whether it be up in the morning, driving a bakery van at 4 a.m. for four years during college, working full time, going to school full time. I've mowed more lawns, pulled more weeds, washed more windows, washed more cars than anyone I know. I've, I haven't had more than a seven day vacation in 30 years, but I do live a balanced life. I just, you know, I, I, I never not worked in 40 years. So I'm very proud of my work ethic. And I am the result of countless numbers of leaders and mentors that believed in me more than I believed in myself. That pre forgave me on countless opportunities when, quite frankly, I didn't deserve it. That they pre extended trust to me. They walked me outside in the parking lot and said, okay, well, you won't be doing that ever again. And you won't be saying that tomorrow. And let's go for a walk so that you understand the consequences, Scott, of how ridiculous that statement was and what you will say word for word to your colleagues to generally apologize for being an idiot. And so I am the receiving end of a massive amount of mentors that have given me credit, latitude, second chances, and believed in me more than I believed in myself. Mm. And what does that do for your day-to-day -day actions today to hold both of those, earned and given? You're a good interviewer. <laughs> you got oh, some chops, Thanks, brother. Scott. You got some <laughs> I chops. appreciate that. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, what you're fishing for is just what drives my, my attitude of gratefulness. It's what drives my abundance mentality. It drives that I got to where I am because I worked my ass off for 40 years. And a lot of people have helped me get there. Coaching, mentoring, my supporter, my ally, my defender my champion. And so every day it drives in me a spirit of gratitude and abundance to do the same, to be more patient with people who are more junior with me, to invest in people who may not do anything for me, to constantly try to lift others and teach others the things that I've learned. And hopefully this doesn't sound like it's just pablum, but I made a lot of mistakes in my career. A lot of mistakes, nothing blatantly illegal or immoral or unethical, or at least no one no one's discovered it yet, but I want to teach people from my mistakes. You know, these, this pothole I just stepped in, be careful here. Walk around that. Just walk around, walk around. Cause I think half a life success, you know what? 
I think 80% of life's success is just avoiding all the mistakes and the messes that everybody else made. That's why when people ask me, Alex, about mentorship, I've, I've written several books on it and have a new book coming out in July called The Ultimate Guide to Great Mentorship through HarperCollins. And I say to people, if I want to learn how to have a $50 million business, I don't go to the guy that's had a $50 million business. I go to the guy that's had four bankruptcies. What did you do wrong? What are their mistakes? If I want to learn how to have a 30-year marriage in spite of my three boys, I go to the lady who's had three marriages. What did you do wrong? What were the temptations, the mistakes, the opportunities you said yes to and you should have said no to? And I just think life is 80% of avoiding the mistakes and hopefully people will have an abundance mentality and teach you about their mistakes and their messes so you can avoid them. I, I'd love to park on that just for a second and just say practically, you're a you're a business owner now. I feel like every business owner experiences this like, man, I'm on the precipice of uncharted territory always if I'm doing my job right. And it, if you kind of have this idea of, man, mistakes are my greatest teacher. And if I can learn from the mistakes that others have made and avoid making them myself, that's that's going to be a really good thing. I feel like obviously there's wisdom in that. That can also make you someone that is horrendously paranoid and prone to inaction. Like you never move forward or do anything new or take any risk ever. How do you make sure that you're framing mistakes in a proper way and not allowing it to freeze you? you now, I'm going to draw upon several of the interviews I've had on the On Leadership podcast. Dr. Susan David is a renowned psychologist out of the Harvard Medical School, wrote a seminal book called Emotional Agility. Highly recommend this book, Emotional Agility. And she basically teaches this simple concept of most of us tend to confuse facts with our opinions, our feelings, and our emotions. Both are valuable, but your opinions aren't facts and your facts aren't emotions, typically. And so I think it's really important to understand the difference between facts and your emotions. Because often as leaders, we conflate and confuse the two. Because we're in sales. We're always in persuasion, influence, and selling mode. So one is make sure you do a really good job of disciplining yourself to separate your narrative, your story, and your, your own press from what the facts are. Second, I think it's important also not to connect things that shouldn't be connected. So-and-so isn't returning my emails, and so-and-so didn't say hi to me in the hallway this morning, and so-and-so walked past me and gave me a what's up but didn't respond. And now everybody's mad at me. I think it's important not to connect things that don't need to be connected or do connect them when they should be connected because you have facts and evidence that maybe you're being a jerk and everybody's avoiding you because you're a narcissist or a sociopath, whatever it is, which 10% of us are, in fact, sociopaths, higher in the C-suite and entrepreneurs. You kind of have to be in some cases. Don't confuse sociopath with psychopath. I'm, 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 I want to hone in on your question Everyone that I have interviewed on the podcast, remember my, my books, the numbers of failures they have is remarkable. Matthew McConaughey, the number of TV parts he tried out, didn't get number of movies, and then bam, time to kill hit. The world knew who he was in 24 hours. The number of businesses Seth Godin, a good friend of mine, launched and did that didn't hit. You never heard of any of his stuff, and then it hits big, right? I mean, on and on and on and on. It's a consistent theme in every entrepreneur's life. Rachel Hollis, you may know, right? The woman from Austin, Texas, who wrote the books, Girl, Wash Your Face and Girl, Stop Apologizing. Second biggest author in America two years ago, next to Michelle Obama. By the way, her former husband, Dave Hollis, passed away four days ago from a a fatal heart attack, just tragic. But Rachel Hollis 
sold more books in America in 2019 than any other author, second only to Michelle Obama. But you never heard of her first six books. She wrote six books until her seventh book hit. And so it's a common theme. You got to keep going. You got to persevere. I did an interview last week with a major geopolitical strategist. It has 70,000 YouTube views in a day. Yesterday, my team sent me all of the vitriol comments. That just vitriol. Like, you you would think (laughs) I should go take my life. I'm so incompetent. (laughs) That's what they sent. That's what your team sent to you. They sent you an email with all the vitriol. (laughs) You know why? Because I've learned you can't have thick skin. Now, keep in mind, 25 years ago, I was a Catholic from Florida moving to Utah. Do the math. The only Catholics here were the priest and me, right? And so this is a very evangelizing state that I've learned to thrive in. And the predominant religion here, I have great respect for. But when I came here, I had very thick skin as a Catholic. But what I realized over time is that with thick skin, nothing gets in, but nothing gets out either. And instead of having thick skin, you got to kind of have translucent skin, to quote Viola Davis. Stuff comes in, stuff comes out. Stuff comes in, stuff comes out. And the lessons you learn, you have to really discern. So what is there to learn from this? What should I do differently? Should I do nothing differently? Was this not about me? It's about somebody else. I think there is great maturity in learning how to take feedback, how to process it, how to leave what's bad, keep what's good, and which of the 270 vitriolic, hateful comments from YouTube can I learn from? I actually posted them and posted them all in my social media yesterday to say, hey, if you're going to put yourself in the public eye, if you're going to lead a company, you know, you got to have translucent skin. So I think it's, it's with time you learn to take those mistakes and those setbacks and use them as fuel to keep going. Remember, nobody read Rachel Hollis's first sixth book. It was the seventh book. You don't know how many interviews Matthew McConaughey went on and didn't get them. And all of a sudden he did. And from one day to the next, the world went from not knowing him to not being able to walk on the street because he kept going, kept going, kept going. You hear it all the time. John Krasansky, is that its name from the office? Is that the name? Oh, yeah. Jim. (laughs) Jim. Well, Jim is his character on the office. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. He shared an interview where he had uh, moved to New York to become an actor and his mom and he had agreed he'd like give it X number of months and he wanted to come home. That, the, the, that agreement was over. And his mom said, you know, I think I got to give it a couple more weeks, see what happens. The next week he tried out for the office and look at his career now. He was going to leave acting and go back to whatever he was doing. And so the key all there, the key there is keep going. It stands out that, I mean, every name you mentioned there especially with regard to the people that are in the personal growth leadership development space, like a Rachel Hollis, or even now in some ways, Matthew McConaughey, it feels like there's something culturally that rallies around those figures because they are quote unquote real. Like that's everyone's like commentary on a Rachel Hollis or on a Matthew McConaughey is they're authentic. And the thing that people value is their authenticity. And I mean, clearly, I mean, universally right now we value vulnerability and authenticity. Is there a lesson that leaders who are not a celebrity and have no desire to be a celebrity should take from that? Well, yeah, don't be naive. I mean, Rachel Hollis was taken down, taken down 
two years ago when she made some mistakes. She and her team failed to attribute some quotes to some other individuals. And, you know, she made some irresponsible comments about certain things that I'm guessing she would do it differently now. You know, there's a lot of lessons to unpack there is as a leader, you are the model. This is a, this is why not everyone should be a leader of people. I'm a little bit of a pariah in the leadership industry. I don't think everyone should be a leader of people. Just like not everyone should be an anesthesiologist. Not everyone should be a commercial airline pilot. Not everyone should be a leader of people because as the leader, as the owner, as the founder, you are the model of everything you want your team members to do. Punctuality, make and keep commitments, don't gossip, deliver on promises, take responsibility for your actions, offer excuse-free apologies. It is a high standard. So if you are going to accept the mantle of being a leader, you have to understand you need to model everything that you want to see in your team members. You have to model humility. You have to model moving outside your comfort zone. You have to model discussing undiscussables. It's a tough job. And every day, everyone is watching everything you do and say and write and tweet and text. And you have to have great judgment. You have to surround yourself with strong advisors that will tell you the truth, give you feedback on your own blind spots. Because as a leader, you tend to build your hubris, often because people don't typically give the CEO feedback on her slideshow. Oh, it was great, boss. I love the 70th slide. That was the best one, the one with the fourth graph from the Harvard Business Review. That one rocked my world. No, no one says that. They just text in the meeting, WTF. Good grief, how long is this going to go? So as a leader, you've got to make sure you built feedback loops where people can tell you what it's like to work with you, what it's like to be led by you, what your strengths and weaknesses are, and you can't dif- dispute them, deny them, deflect them. You've got to say, my gosh, that took some courage. Thank you for saying that. Tell me more about that. That doesn't mean that everyone's going to be your advisor or your trusted counselor, but being authentic and real, there's a pendulum. And that pendulum will come back and swing at you because some people will weaponize that against you. A good example, I'm a stutterer. I have a lifelong stutter and speech impediment all my life. I've been to decades of speech therapy, speech pathology, had braces three times, Invisalign three times. I have two speech coaches, retainers, headgear, everything. I got some feedback on this vitriol from this interview the number of people that talked about how I slaughter the English language and how could I ever have a podcast and I should be fired immediately. And you just, you got to recognize that when I talk about my stutter and up until a year ago, I used to host an iHeartRadio program, a guy who has a stutter, a strong stutter, by the way, I've worked hard to try to overcome it. People will weaponize your vulnerability and your authenticity against you. And you got to just expect it and keep going, keep going, keep going. Because you showed up today and, I mean, you were just like joy personified coming on to the call today, right? You and I had a brief conversation before and I was like, oh my gosh, this guy is so much fun five minutes in. This is just a blast. It doesn't sound like the voice or tone or conversation from a guy that was railed on the day before by thousands of people, right? So how do you, what I'm interested in is, like you said, translucent skin, you the answer is not, I can't hear feedback or I'm going to have t- a tough skin where none right. of that gets to me. Right. But then, like you said, it's got to get out of you. How on earth are you able to receive, I mean, criticism, right? It's not even, it's not even just tough, constructive feedback. It's criticism. How are you able to receive that and then come on today and be like authentically joyful? 
Oh, it's, this is such an easy answer. I don't play to my haters. I'm, I, I live a life, I try to live a life of enormous gratitude. And mm-hmm. I have a little bit of an overinflated sense of self-esteem because you have to, to persevere through people who don't like what you do, what you say, or how you say it. I'm very comfortable putting myself out there for criticism because I'm trying to be a model. I, you can't create things if you don't try and fail. I'm very comfortable failing. I'm very comfortable. Rachel Hollis said something very wise once. She said, most people aren't afraid to fail. What they're afraid of is having other people see them fail. And I have no problem, no problem failing publicly, none whatsoever. I just, I'm, I'm grateful that I wasn't killed last week or two weeks ago in the Turkish Syrian earthquake. I'm grateful that I don't have pancreatic cancer. I'm grateful that my boys are going to walk through that front door. They're going to drive me crazy, but I'm going to be grateful that they weren't shot up at school today. Some mass shooting. I don't mean this to be macabre. I mean it to be real. I don't let other people's opinions of me get me down. Maybe I'm a narcissist again. Maybe I'm a sociopath. I don't think I am, but I don't play to the haters. I just keep going. Because I know for every one negative comment out there, there's 10 people who didn't agree, but didn't have the courage to say it. And that's okay. Because I'm willing to be disliked. I'm okay if some people dislike me because I know I'm inspiring and igniting confidence and passion and genius in others, even if they don't tell me. So I just don't play to the people who are jealous of me. And it's usually what it is. And I say, what you're really jealous is that I got up at four o'clock this morning and did two podcasts, wrote an ink column, went to the podcast station and interviewed, you know, two major celebrities and then did another phone call and came here for this podcast. And tonight I'm going to be driving my son to church to receive one of his sacraments in the Catholic church. And then later we're going to go have dinner and I'm going to come home and do it again tomorrow morning, seven days a week, because life is short and I want to accomplish as much as possible. So I kind of put blinders on, but my team knows that I'm interested in things that will help me, which is why they gave me all the negative comments because they know I could go through them and say what's really helpful. Have I thought about it? Sure. Has it stopped me? Oh, hell no. <laughs> no, oh, no, no. <laughs> I don't let jealousy disguised as criticism stop me from living my best life. Mm. To what it is. And nobody admits to being jealous don't want to miss to it. Yeah, ain't that the truth? Uh, including me, right? Like it's like, and I've got to recognize that, man, that I am capable of not being aware of my own jealousy. So why on earth would I give it any time to others? But okay, before we move on from that topic, though. I'm jealous of most people nonstop throughout the day. I mean, I just, it's, it's human. I just talk about it. I'm comfortable talking about how jealous I am of you and your good looks and your great questions and your growing podcast and your affable personality. Yeah, says the guy with the biggest podcast, biggest leadership podcast in the world. Yeah, sounds okay. Um, Okay, so on the topic of like, I I really don't have fear of failure in front of others. Like you're saying that's your attitude, that's your mindset. Is that cultivated and grown or is that more natural wiring? Where does that come from for you? I don't think it's natural wiring. I think I've just learned some principles in life. And that is no one's coming to save you. No one's coming to build your finances for you. No one's coming to help you. You have to ask for help. You have to be vulnerable enough to say, I don't know that. Teach me about that. What does that mean? 
what is an NFT? What does crypto really mean? What does AI mean and how does it impact? And just ask and ask and ask. And maybe I've just become very comfortable being uncomfortable. In fact, that really kind of is it. I'm quite comfortable being the person in the room that raises my hand and say, you know what? I don't know how to calculate EBITDA. Could you take five minutes and teach me? Because I know full well, there's 15 people in the room that don't know what EBITDA stands for. And I'm very comfortable being that person. Very comfortable. Not because I'm especially well-spoken or well-educated or good-looking or any of that. I'm not any of that. I'm just comfortable recognizing that most people are more scared than I am. So I'm willing to take a bit of a risk and make it more comfortable for other people. I think it's probably more cultivated than anything else. I just know that most people are running through life fearful of everything, fearful of everything. And that's not how I want to live my life. By the way, I'm scared, you know what, list of sharks, snakes, and alligators. They cripple me, cripple me. <laughs> sharks, snakes, and alligators. Everything else, bring it on. <laughs> That's great. I love that. Uh, I'm from okay, Florida. So we're still in- I'm from Florida. Yeah. Of course, sharks, snakes, yeah. and alligators scare me. Yeah, no wonder you moved to Utah, right? That's, exactly. that's why you got out of there. Huh? I love that. So if we're in the, the word bubble of abundance mentality, how does how does your relationship with God play into all of this? You know, it's, can, I, can I, how much time do I have? <laughs> do I have a minute? <laughs> as much as you want, Scott. I was raised in a, in, a, in a faith family. Like everyone, I've had, you know, crises of faith, especially when these mass, mass casualties happen. I just think, okay, I understand free will. I understand free agency, but I don't understand why our creator and the Lord would let 40,000 people die a horrific death. I, I don't understand that. I don't understand. I have a crisis of faith every hour of every day. And I also believe that we're here for a reason. I don't hear. I'm, I don't think I'm here to upgrade my Mercedes next month. I don't think I'm here just to go to the Ralph Lauren store. I don't think I'm just here to go to Roos Chris, which I wish I could afford more often, but I can't. There's got to be more to it than this. This can't be it. And so I think having faith that there's a bigger reason of why I'm here, what my purpose is, keeps me going. I have to tell you. I'm a reluctant father. I was married when I was 41. My wife is about 13 years younger than I am. And she wanted to have children. And I knew that marrying her was a no deal if I didn't choose to have children. So I chose to have children. I do not like parenthood. I love my children. I don't like parenthood. There's a big difference. My calling in life is not parenthood. I'm actually pretty decent at it, but I do not enjoy it. Like I enjoy champagne or bread and cheese. But I enjoy champagne, bread and cheese more than I enjoy parenting. Some of you are laughing your asses off right now. And some of you are horrified at my lack of, of integrity. But my faith has an enormous, enormous impact on moving forward, forgiving, trying to be a better person, recognizing what is my purpose? What is my calling? You know, a few weeks ago, I interviewed the astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson very famous as astrophysicist. It was a remarkable interview because at the, end of the, at the end of the interview, I asked him, I said, hey, what correlation is there at all with astrophysicists and religion? You can picture him. He's the, the black, very famous astrophysicist, written lots of books, right? Most people know who Neil deGrasse Tyson is. And he said, actually, it's the wrong question. He said, but we asked this question of the 300 or so astrophysicists that there are in the world. It's a very small group of people. He said, 
The question is different. And the question was something like, you know, when they asked them about religion, to what degree do you believe a higher power has any impact on your life and such? And he said, the higher the education, the lower the correlation. Like, you know, master's degree, PhD, physicist, bam, bam, up. The more educated the person is on the sciences, the history of the world, the less likely they are to believe that we were created by Jesus as father or whatever your religion is by the Lord, the less likely they are to believe. That was not an especially helpful interview for me because it has, of course, challenged my faith. One of the smartest guys in the world will tell you, well, the smarter you are, the less likely you are to have faith in God. But I wonder like, okay, so maybe God put that interview in my life for a reason. Maybe there's something to learn from that more than just questioning my faith. Maybe he's put that in my life to think about it and think about why I'm really here. What is my contribution? How do I leave an impact? And what's my legacy? How do I launch these three boys into a tough world as gentlemen, servants of society? I don't know if I answered your question there, but my faith has challenged hourly. If you turn the TV on, and as, as much as it's challenged, it's kind of emboldened. I don't, I don't think you can go through life not saying your faith isn't challenged. Hmm. Well, gosh, I mean, even having the question mark in your head of maybe this interview is placed in my life for a reason. I mean, in itself feels like a thought that is rooted in faith. Like it takes faith to even consider that as a possibility, it seems like. Yeah. You know, this is a crazy train answer, I know. So I hope your listeners and viewers are still with us. I once heard Jesse Ventura, right, former wrestler turned governor of Minnesota 20 years ago. I once heard him in an interview, I think it was in Howard Stern, who I don't listen to very often because I don't care for that type of conversation for my virginal ears. But I once heard Jesse Ventura say that organized religion is for weak people. And I thought, you know, that's actually not true. It's the opposite, Jesse. Organized religion is for strong people because it takes a lot to hold yourself to a higher standard. It takes a lot to subjugate, to follow some rules and standards that are higher than the ones you might cook up for yourself. It takes a lot of courage to have faith in something that you may or may not have evidence in, like physical, tangible evidence. I actually think religion is for strong people, not weak people. I really appreciate that answer. And I, I, <laughs> this is a rabbit trail that I really want to go down. Uh, and so I think it would be really helpful to go down because I think it's actually really helpful as an undergirding for leadership. Just based on observation, I would say, man, you're someone that values freedom, right? You've created a lot of margin for freedom in your time, in your schedule, in what you choose to do as a vocation, things like that. And simultaneously, I think the world could look at you being a practicing Catholic and say, well, that seems deeply contradictory to you wanting and pursuing freedom. Uh, what are like, I think it's in the same vein as what you just talked about, but what are your thoughts there? Dude, that's deep. Yeah. I don't think for a moment, my continual commitment to a religious faith does anything but give me freedom. It clears my mind. It focuses me on being a better person it has me in service to a greater cause. It disciplines me. 
I don't believe every tenet of the Catholic Church. My wife's not Catholic. We're raising our three sons Catholic. My youngest son is receiving his second sacrament tonight. It's called the Sacrament of Reconciliation. It's penance. It's confession, right? So my eight-year-old is going up to have his first confession tonight with a priest. He has nothing to confess. He's eight years old. But that's a requirement on his way to communion. And as you may know, Catholics are a rare breed. We believe that the Eucharist isn't a symbolic representation. We actually are arrogant enough to believe that it's the living body of Christ. Once the priest transforms it, it's a process we made up a name for called transubstantiation. Say that three times fast. A little heavy for an eight-year-old. But tonight, we're going to drive up to Park City to our church I've been going to for 24 years. And my youngest son is going to go through a ritual. And then we're going to go afterwards. We're going to have dinner. And we're going to talk about it. You know, why is it important to know when you do things that hurt people's feelings? And why is it important to have a good conscience? And why is it important to go and talk about it with someone in confidence that can help you work through it? My wife, not a Catholic, fundamentally disagrees with the Catholic process of confession. Why do you have to confess your sins to a priest? And I think she's got a good point. I'm not sure you have to. The idea, though, is to have a conversation and maybe have someone that has some wisdom that could guide you here, guide you there. I'm not trying to argue the efficacy of the Catholic sacrament of reconciliation. But it doesn't bind me. It gives me freedom. It does give me an identity. I'm one of those rare people. I love going to church. Like, I love it. I'm not like an uber religious person. You'll rarely hear me evangelize. Catholics aren't a really evangelical type of, you know, faith. But I just love it. I look forward to it. I like the serenity, the ritual, the depth. Catholicism is an intellectual pursuit, by the way. Probably even more intellectual than some religions. I've gone off on a crazy, crazy train. I think that discipline dedication and study and understanding gives you freedom. I'll be honest, most Catholics have no idea what's going on in Mass. They couldn't tell you the first reading is from the Old Testament and the second reading is from the New Testament and the, and the gospel is from the four gospels and the homily. They couldn't tell you half what's going on. They had no idea why they're kneeling, standing, sitting, kneeling. They don't even know. But I just dedicated a lot of my life to try to understand why are we doing this and why are we doing that and why is that important? Was this symbolic or is that literal? That gives me freedom, intellectual freedom. It makes me a better person all around. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Man, what an, what an answer. Holy that cow. That was a crazy so train, m- I know. No, there is so much wrapped into that that's so powerful. Uh, and I think, honestly, practically really helpful. No so, one's ever asked that I- me that question, so forgive me for not having thought through that very well. <laughs> that's that's our goal on this podcast, so that's good. Okay, something I notice about you, Scott, is, and this is actually something I'm trying to grow in right now. Have you ever read the book? I think the title is The Contrarian's Guide to Leadership. No, but sounds delicious. <laughs> that's literally, I literally picked up the book because I was like, wow, I love the title. So I'm going to go for this. Did you write this, this book? This, no, I, did, I definitely didn't. It's a former president. I think he was the president of USC like in the 90s. So okay. there's some there's some references and examples in the book that you're like, wow, this is really dated whenever you're talking about spending a ton of time reading the newspaper and stuff like this. But it's really oh, wait, good. I read the newspaper. Is there something wrong with that? <laughs> there you go. Uh, I love that. Uh, just, yeah, maybe a little bit of an age gap between us. In Scott. print. It still comes to my house, brother, in print. <laughs> I love that. Well, that might be behind uh, this next question then or w- what I'm noticing. So one of the things he talks about 
in that book is the value and power of gray thinking. So he says like, we have such a proclivity from a leadership perspective to make things into black and white. And it's just one of the things I notice in you, Scott, is like you saying like, yes, I'm Catholic. I don't know that I fully understand all of having to confess to a priest. And and you said like, yes, I can get jealous sometimes. And I'm not going to say that I don't get jealous sometimes, even though I don't agree with it. And, and so can you tell me like, how do you hold the gray area in your head? And like, how do you manage the gray area? Because that's something that I think is really challenging. Again, no one has ever asked me that question. So here it goes. I mean, maybe other than like the 10 commandments, I mean, most things are gray in life, right? I mean, you know, high gravity ethical issues are black and white. Here's a good example. This will sound self-serving. I would never share the story, but I'm going to share it in service to your question. This morning at six o'clock, I had to be in the studio for a podcast interview. I interviewed Gary Sinise, the you know actor and humanitarian patriot. And I stopped at a local grocery store here to get a cup of coffee. It was 17 degrees. And I parked across the street and there was a man sitting out front, six this morning, 17 degrees, blankets on. He'd been there the whole night, I'm guessing. Large homeless population in Salt Lake City, shocking in the winter. And the conventional wisdom is, you know, for the unhoused population, don't give them money at an intersection. Don't give them money because it just perpetuates it and the panhandling and the crime and and give it to, you know, social services that, you know, can make sure it's not going to, you know, alcohol or drugs, whatever. That's the conventional wisdom, right? Give the money to foundations. They have the infrastructure and that kind of stuff. And this is the third time I've seen this man here. It was 17 degrees. I'm an idiot. I didn't have a coat on. I didn't think I was going to park so far away. I get out of my newly start shirt and my not so inexpensive car. I run in. And I buy this man an extra large hot tea, a croissant and a muffin. And I run it out to him. When I came back in, the clerk um, admonished me, you know, you really shouldn't do that. That guy sits there in the morning for a reason. And he gave me the whole speech of why I should, you know, if I'm going to contribute. I was kind of, kind of surprised at the, at the, you know, the, 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 the wagging I got from the clerk. And he wasn't right and he wasn't wrong. Should I have technically given the $7 to the, you know, Presbyterian church that runs the soup kitchen? Yes. And, and I kind of thought, you know, my creator is going to judge me on, on what I think I should do and what I should do in the moment and whether or not I should let that guy out there. I mean, I, I could barely breathe running from my car into the grocery store. That man had been out there for who knows how long. I could barely function. It was so cold. I had an undershirt on and you know, long sleeve shirt. And so everything in life is gray. You know, thou shalt not kill, don't steal, honor your marriage vows. There you go. Everything else, it's all gray. Do what you think is right. Raise your standard. I don't think my creator is going to judge me poorly that I gave the guy a cup of hot tea. Is that going to guarantee my soul for eternity? Probably no correlation. But I'm going to do the best to touch lives as much as I can. And for those who are liking me right now, you know what? I can be a jackass, right? I say things that are rude and I do things that are self-serving and I make mistakes nonstop all day long. Ask my wife, she'll write a book about it one day. It'll be a good one. But I do, I do try to keep my standard high because everything almost is gray. 
with the exception of a couple of things, you're living in a gray world. I mean, the fact of the matter is, most of the stuff you would do, you wouldn't get caught on. I love this idea of behave in a way as if no one was seeing. Can I share a 30-second story? I would love that, please. I'm not a member of this man's faith. Joel Osteen is a very famous pastor from Texas, prolific entrepreneur, if you will, author. I like him. I don't know how much I buy into the prosperity gospel kind of methodology, but I like him from afar. I think he seems to be a good person. Lots of haters, but he seems to me to be a really fine person. And I'm quite uncomfortable in an evangelical world because I'm Catholic. There's no part of me that was raised evangelical, right? I'm very uncomfortable in that world. But I heard a story once that I'm confident is true, and that is Joel Osteen, the famous Texas minister who inherited his father's church and has gone on, I think, to serve that family very well. He, we, share a, we shared the same literary agent. Anyway, Joel got out of his car once at a grocery store parking lot, had a whole stack of papers in his hand, and the wind blew them all over the parking lot. And Joel spent the next, I don't know, 8, 10, 12 minutes walking around, picking up all these papers, put them back in his car. And there was like an errant paper, like one final paper that had like tucked away somewhere and he saw it, but it was like, he'd spent like 10 minutes, like picking up all these papers, a guy that whether he should or should not be is, you know, worth a lot of money, probably could have hired someone to have an assistant pick up the papers for him. And he said, he saw this last paper. He was like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? Another one? And he hesitated and he went over and picked it up brought it back to his car and walked into the grocery store and a couple, unbeknownst to him, an older couple had been sitting in their car watching the whole thing unfold. They watched him go pick up all these papers. They saw this other paper. They saw him look at it and like second guess and go get it. And they got out of their car and they said, we wondered what you would do. We wondered if you would go get that paper. And the moral of the story is, you ought to be living your life picking up all the papers, whether someone is watching you or not. And if, and if the story is true, which I choose to believe it is, I don't have any reason to believe Joel knew someone was watching him. He just chooses to behave in a way, whether it's public or private. And that's the best way to thrive in a gray world is just always do the right thing. And when you don't own it, apologize, admit to it and commit to yourself and others that you'll do better next time. Simple words, good words to live by. I'd love to hear a little bit more about uh, the conversations that you've had with people on your podcast. How long have you been hosting the On Leadership podcast? 70 years. (laughs) That, that, no way. (laughs) You have too much hair to give that answer. There's no way. (laughs) Let's see, five years, 250 episodes every Tuesday, haven't missed a Tuesday, including all through the pandemic, much less than some. But we've just, we've taped 300 interviews. We've released 250. So you're 50 ahead. I'm, Is I'm, that I'm correct? You're 50 a year ahead. ahead. It's a problem. We might need to go to twice a week because, as you know, the bigger your podcast grows, publicists, agents, uh, celebrities, we just literally, I, I, my text just came in. I just booked like the lead singer for One Republic. It just came in. So, you know, 
And I have a leadership podcast. Why am I interviewing the lead singer of Billy Bubba? <laughs> I don't know, but bring him or her on. I'm guessing it's a guy I don't even know. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, I mean, congr- congratulations to you and the team. That's that's truly incredible. What in, in interviewing and conversations and listening, what is the biggest lesson that you've learned in the past five years? Oh, um, one. Okay, well, give me a few. Give I'm me the give ones one. that stand out most. Hey, here's, okay, great. Here's one. It's going to sound like I'm name dropping because I am. So I interviewed Matthew McConaughey. Uh, my boys loved him because he's he's the voice of like the star, like the panda, I think it is, or something in Sting. Anyway, I interviewed him and I asked him for the best advice he's ever gotten. And he said he once had a friend whose uncle was in his 90s. And of course, only Matthew McConaughey can do this voice. I cannot even remotely imitate him. By the way, Matthew McConaughey wrote a seminal book called Green Lights, go buy his book. I hear the audio tape is life-changing. He said the advice that Matthew McConaughey got from his friend was this uncle in his 90s said, you know, basically, I had a lifetime of worries about all these crises that none of them ever happened. Such good advice. We spend so much time preparing and thinking and cogitating and perseverating on things that never happen don't come true. The opposite is I work with a colleague and her mantra is it'll all be okay. And I say, no, 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 no. It will not be okay. It will be okay because we work it out and make it okay. Things just don't turn out okay. You have to prepare and have contingency plans, have a backup plan and a backup plan and a backup plan. It won't all be okay. Ukraine will not be okay. The world of citizens with a conscience will have to come to the aid for Ukraine to be okay, otherwise exist, to defend itself from the outrageous crime of humanity perpetrated on it by Russia. I know I went sideways there on you. Ukraine will not be okay. We will have to make Ukraine okay. At the same time, it's great advice to say, are you worried about things that aren't going to happen? Now, similarly, I interviewed Matthew McConaughey's wife. She wrote a successful children's book about six months ago, Camilla Alves McConaughey. She was a very successful, famous Brazilian runway model and entrepreneur long before she met Matthew McConaughey. They have three boys. They live in Texas. I had a lovely interview with her. I said, you know, like, do the Applebee's, I mean, sorry, do the McConaughey's go to Applebee's? Like, how do you live a life? She said, yeah, we go to Applebee's. She said, it's easier getting it in than it, getting in than it is getting out. Getting out is hard because everyone thinks they know us. And I have to tell my children, you know, they think they know us. They don't know us. So whatever it is they say, you have to remember, they don't know this, even though they think they know us. Lovely woman. But she said something profound. It, it, it was right around the time that the Uvalde massacre had happened in that school in Texas. It was a school that Matthew either went to or was raised in that community. And Matthew had come out quite prolifically about, you know, we've got to do something. We've got to do something. This is not acceptable. Your right to own a gun does not supersede my child's right to live. What are we going to do? By the way, those are my words, not his. And I believe that. I believe your right to own a gun does not supersede my child's right to live. We've got to figure that out. She's, and I asked her about, so how do you deal with conflict in your family? You're in the public eye. Some people are suggesting your husband may want to run for governor someday. And she said something profound. She said, you know, as the McConaughey's, we don't seek conflict, but we also don't avoid it. I thought that was such great advice. I think much of my life, I have a pretty 
scrappy personality. I'm a fairly courageous guy. I think I've sought conflict too much. I like to wrestle stuff to the ground. I like to argue with my wife way too much. As a guy, I like, you know, hey, want to have a beer? She's like, I don't want to talk to you for three days. What are you talking about? So I tend to bounce back really quick. And she's like, get him, get out of my face. And so I'm being much more thoughtful around not seeking conflict, but also not shrinking from it either. Good balance there of both. Hmm. There's that great thinking again. In the art and practice of interviewing people, what's something that you've learned? Well, if you read the YouTube views of my last interview, you're asking the wrong guy. You know, uh, Larry King, who was going to endorse a book I wrote, but he passed before I could get the manuscript done. He said something profound. He said, for a radio, TV, podcasts, your listeners, your viewers, your subscribers, they come for the guest, but they stay for the host. They come for the guest, but they stay for the host. And so a couple of weeks ago, I had a guy write in an email and he said, you know, I've tried to like your podcast, but you know, after 17 episodes, I just don't think I like your style. And I thought, it took you 17 episodes to suffer through me to decide you don't like me? Most people know in 17 seconds whether they like me or not. Dude, I could have given you 16 hours of your life back. So you just got to have transparent skin. You know, I try to bring my best. I try to do research. I try to research my guest. I can't spend hours on it. I do my best to read most of their book. I try to ask questions that interest me. Most publishers will tell authors, you've got to write for your audience. I've written and published six books. I have three more coming out in the next year. Insane, stupid, idiotic. But I don't write for my audience. I write for me. I write things that I think will be interesting. And then I hope that people like me will find me. I'm not interviewing for 8 billion people. I'm interviewing for the people like me that have a conscience, work hard, want to improve, aren't maximizing every role in their life, don't get everything right, are aspirational, have a contagious personality, but also get down when things happen that set you back. So my advice to answer your question is have translucent skin. I try to talk about 20% of the time versus 80%. If I have someone who maybe is less well-known, I might talk more. But if I've got, you know, a four-star general on the crystal, you want to listen to him, not me. And so I'm a little more cognizant of knowing when I should come in and when I should be quiet. Every interview is a little bit different. I try to know my place. I've come a long way. I by no means the world's best interviewer. But I honestly got doing my best every time. I do my best. And for some, it's never enough. And for one woman in Ohio who emails me every episode and deconstructs all the things she liked about it, I take great joy in her email. Her name is Claire. I've never She's met She's a nun, isn't she? I've heard you talk I mean, about this. Is she a nun? I was, I was trying to stay away from the Catholic thing. It's a nun. It's a nun from Ohio that every week she writes me all the things she learned from the podcast. I didn't want to say her religion for fear it's felt too catholic but it is a nun (laughs) we we crossed that a long time ago we're good i I think you're right my friend i i hope that's appropriate yeah that's excellent who's a leader that you really respect scott oh countless i think john maxwell is a man of enormous integrity i think seth godin liz wiseman short a book called multipliers 
I think she's a remarkable woman. Indra Nui, the CEO of Pepsi. Ursula Burns, the first ever black CEO of the Fortune 50. And there's lots of people I admire. Stephen Covey was a man of enormous integrity and honor. You knew him personally, correct? I met Stephen Covey? Yeah. Oh, sure. I worked for him for 10 years prior to his passing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, That's what I was asking. Yeah, y'all overlapped. So if you were to label the most profound lesson you learned from him in your 10 years working with him, what would that be? Kind of glad you asked this question. So Dr. Covey wrote many seminal books, right? Time Magazine's Person of the Year and blah, 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 everything. Every accolade you could ever win. He and I had nothing in common, right? I mean, he was, you know, a very deliberate contemplative, calm person. I'm, you know, he's a senator and I'm like in the House of Representatives, right? We were very different in terms of personalities, right? Lovely man. He wrote a book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And as the chief marketing officer, I fielded nonstop interviews from the press who wanted to interview him or even me about his book, The Seven Habits of Highly Efficient People. And I would say, well, no, the book is called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People not highly efficient people. And they were just, they were just ignorant. They, did, they didn't realize that they were using the word efficient and effective interchangeably. When all of us do that, a lot, there is a difference between being efficient and being effective. One is not better than the other, but there is a difference. Like for example, I am a poster child of efficiency. I get up every day at four o'clock. I work nonstop like a maniac and I fall into bed every night at 9.30. I am never awake at 10 o'clock, ever. I get up again, rinse, rinse and repeat. I'm that annoying neighbor that gets up at four o'clock on Saturday. I'm raking my yard. It's raked by six, mowed by seven, cars are washed by eight, and I'm ready for breakfast by nine. I mean, my entire life has been this productive efficiency mindset. Write a list, check it off, check it off, check it off, check it off. Add things to the list that I just did that weren't on the list to get the gratification of checking it off. I All of my success in life, quite frankly, has come from my efficient mindset. And I don't make any apologies for that, except for also all of my pain comes from when I take that efficiency mindset and I move it into my relationships with people. Because you cannot treat people like you treat unloading the dishwasher or washing the car or raking the lawn. With people, you have to have an an effective mindset. Dr. Covey said many wise things, including with people, fast is slow and slow is fast. Well, I do everything fast, everything. And so I have to be very mindful of that when I'm leading people, working with people, collaborating, trying to stay married, trying to parent. I have to move outside of my comfort zone and realize that I've got to slow down to a speed that is both uncomfortable and unnatural for me and move outside of my efficiency mindset, which is my default mindset, and move into a more effective mindset. Slow down, ask fewer questions, listen more intently, be more empathetic. It's not natural for me. And it's where all the pain in my life comes is when I try to use my talent, which is efficiency with people. Every company is now a technology company, whether you're selling tulips, lingerie, plums, or software. Every company is now a technology company and every company is in the same business. You're in the people business. You're in the relationship business. And I'm not actually great at developing relationships. I don't like small talk. I'm uncomfortable with silence. I like to move things along constantly. And I have to work on being better at relationships. It's a profound insight I learned 
from Dr. Covey. Know when to be efficient and know when to be effective. It will transform your life if you keep that mindset, know when to do which. Hmm. That feels like a proper way to close out. Scott, th- thank you so much for your time, first of all, and investing this has in been our the audience. Least cogent podcast interview you've ever narrated. <laughs> I, first of all, you're going to have to define cogent for me because I'm not sure what that means. Me like but logical. I, like this one has been like all over the place. <laughs> no, I really appreciate it. I, I, and honestly, I look at you as kind of like a model leader and it's cool to see someone that you view as a model that is also still preserving humility, willing to talk about mistakes and willing to be open in their communication is also just outrageously friendly. So I really appreciate you setting an example in that. Um, Thank you so much for your time today. If y'all are listening to this, I would really encourage you. Master Mentors is, there's actually two volumes and it really um, does an incredible job as a book of unpacking some of the insights from the On Leadership podcast. And what, Scott, I just, I love this about your book. It's so digestible. Like you can open up to any page and like, read five minutes at a time. So I really appreciate that. And then the podcast is on leadership and we'll put the link to that in the show notes. Anywhere else you would point to people or point people to before we go, Scott? Well, my website is scottjeffreymiller.com. I don't want to be too self-serving. I'm looking forward to reading your next book. I'm looking forward to reading your (laughs) book when it comes out. So stand by for Alex's book. That's going to be solid. maybe Maybe he'll ask me to endorse it. I'd be honored. I appreciate that, Scott. Appreciate you. Thank you, sir. Well, I hope that you appreciated that conversation as much as I did. I'll tell you, the information that he shared was just exceptional. But one of the things that really stood out to me was not just the information he shared, but the way he shared the information. We often teach and believe that message matters, but manner often matters more. And man, I think Scott is just such an excellent example of that because he shared his content and stories in a way that was energetic, that was assertive, that was curious, that was humble, and that was also just incredibly winsome. So I'm so grateful to Scott for his time and for for his investment into all of us. Hey, real quick, before we go, if you like this content, we also provide written content every single week. We send a weekly email called Worth It Wednesday, and that's because I think most email isn't worth it. I really don't like email that much because it's not worth your time or worth your energy. So we said, man, if we're going to send an email every week, it better be worth it. So every week, we're going to send you a principle worth learning, a question worth answering, and a recommendation worth taking. That's why we call it Worth It Wednesday. You can read it in under two minutes, and we like to also include a video if you like the principle to be explained that way. There's so many of you that are already part of that growing community. If you want to join the Worth It Wednesday community, you can sign up by clicking the link that's in the show notes. And I'd also be remiss not to say that if you are an impact-driven leader that owns or runs a business, we'd love to have a conversation with you about joining the Path for Growth membership or signing up for one-on-one coaching to receive perspective, accountability, and direction from one of our coaches who has experience owning or running a business and practicing healthy growth. If you are interested in one of those offerings, you can click the link in the show notes to get more information and schedule a call with one of our coaches. Y'all, we're rooting for you. We want to see you win. Remember, my strength is not for me. Your strength is not for you. Our strength is for service. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go.